Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Genesis chapter 2, and while you're turning there, I will pray for us. Father, would you hear our prayers right now? Um, We want to make the most of this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for salvation. And we thank you for uh, the gift of marriage. Uh, It's a great gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's an overwhelming gift at times, and we don't always know the exact best way to steward it. Uh, And I pray that you would really draw near Holy Spirit and illuminate your word tonight uh, to make it very practically applicable to us. We don't just want uh, theoretical, abstract, academic knowledge. We really want to know. We want theology with shoe leather that we can put to work in our marriage and have more enjoyable marriages uh, that are more fruitful, more happy, more healthy, but also more honoring to you. And we pray that you would be working under that end tonight. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, I'm doing this a little bit different than I've done in the past. And the way I'm doing it is I'm going to start out every week and tell a story or two. And a lot of times the stories will be about me and my wife. Um, some may be good, some bad, some ugly, uh, just because those are the stories that I know the best. So um, when my wife and I were first married, the first two months was kind of like a honeymoon period. I don't know if any of y'all can identify with that. Uh, and then really the next year, year and a half, was really, really, really bad and hard. Uh, we're both uh, type A personalities. Uh, I got increasingly more insensitive. She got increasingly more hypersensitive. Uh, that's like some kind of chemical compounds you put in a jar and you shake it up and it doesn't go well. We, we literally had about a two-month period, and this is not an exaggeration, where we probably had like a screaming match. <laughs> Uh, every other day. Sometimes every day, but but for sure every other day. And then it maybe settled down to about once a week. And, and the reason it settled down was not because we were necessarily getting more holy. It was because we just got more busy and we didn't see each other much except on the weekends. And it was almost a joke. It was like by Sunday night, if we hadn't had a fight, it's like it's coming because we've been hanging out for 48 straight hours. We're going to fight about something. And I remember this happened at least once. I think this honestly happened twice. Uh, it was just so bad and so hard. Um, and this wasn't in the middle of a yelling match. You know, you say lots of stupid, terrible things, right, in the heat of the moment. This was after the yelling match is over. We both had calmed down, and it was kind of cool, calm, and collected. And I remember we both kind of looked at each other and said, you know, uh, we're, I'm miserable. And, and the way I kind of said it was, and, and you don't seem to be the girl that I married. You, 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 you seem like a crazy person. And she basically said to me, well, you're not the man I married. You, you just seem like this mean, evil, selfish jerk. You know, a lot of other probably adjectives in there. But we both said, uh, we're not leaving. You know, we're, we're committed to Christ. We're committed to the Word of God. We know we don't have biblical grounds for divorce. And so we might be miserable together for the next 80 years, but we're not going anywhere. Now, praise the Lord, we didn't stay miserable. <laughs> okay. But what happened in that moment is, I think, at least two things. Number one, and and listen, we were young and immature in so many ways, but we at least had enough of a bedrock commitment to Christ is first in our life. We, We have bowed the knee to Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we know what the Bible says, and it doesn't say that you can get a divorce just because you don't like any each other anymore. So we're not leaving. 
So that was what we practically kind of said to each other in our own way. It gave us some space to work on the marriage. I mean, listen, secular statistics will show you if you go find a hard, miserable marriage, if the two people will just commit to stay together for the next five years, they have the, the statistically, they have a good chance of working it out, and it gets better. It may not get perfect. Okay? So you, sometimes you just need the time, you need the space. But what enabled us to say that is, again, in our own very immature way, we at least had enough sense of intimacy with commitment to Christ uh, that there was at least enough joy in that relationship. They were like, even if I'm going to be miserable in this most important human relationship, there's at least enough trickle of joy in my spiritual relationship with Christ, I think I'll be able to hang on. And, and by God's grace, within a, maybe a year, year and a half, things had really turned around. And I tell people our first year and a half was really hard. It was like we were digging a hole for ourselves. The next year and a half was really hard because we were trying to climb out of that hole. And then the next 20 years had, for the most part, been pretty good. You know, it's not perfect, but it got better. So there is encouragement there for y'all. Now, <clears throat> I do a decent amount of marriage counseling. I was meeting with a couple fairly recently, and they've been married for years. I think from what they tell me, pretty much the whole marriage has been hard. I think at times, you know, they both profess to be Christians, and uh, at times there has been discussion of divorce maybe. Um, at least there seems to be that air about it. And so I was telling them that story of my wife and I and kind of saying at some level, you've got to be so committed to Christ that you're willing to be miserable for the next 75 years. No, listen. Obviously, I don't want them to be miserable for the next 75 years. I don't think they're going to be miserable for the next 75 years. But that's hypothetically possible, right? And so I was trying to say it in a very candid, kind of in-your-face way. If you want this thing to work, that's how committed you've got to be to your marriage. That you're so committed to obeying Jesus and what he says in the Bible, you're committed to sticking and I, I, I know this guy, and I really appreciate his candor and honesty back to me. He said, I ain't signing up for 75 years of misery. You know, not only am I not signing up for it, that ain't what I signed up for when I got married. And I really appreciated his honesty and humility. But here's the danger. If, if we give ourselves outs that the Bible doesn't give us, it's, just, it's way too tempting. And, and, and why would he make a comment like that? And I, and I can't speak 100% for sure. Okay. But again, I've done enough marriage counseling that a lot of times couples will come in and usually they're both miserable, right? It's rarely the case that like one of them is like, I'm happy as a lark, you know, and the other person's like, I hate this person. You know, usually misery goes both ways. There are exceptions to that. And a lot of times one of my questions will be, well, how is each of your personal individual walks with the Lord? And not always, but nine times out of ten, the answer is, that's pretty terrible. We're not really going to church. I don't really read the Bible much. You know, I kind of pray sometimes throughout the day or maybe in the shower. And have a, but there, there's, it's, and it's like, well, and depending on how well I know the people and how comfortable I am with them and they are with me, my response oftentimes is, you know, kind of, what do you expect? Because, listen, just like I prayed at the beginning, guys, and the longer you do this, I think the longer you'll know it. Marriage, I think second to the gift of Christ, marriage is the greatest gift that God gives people, a Christian marriage. But just like following Christ is the hardest thing you'll ever do, marriage is probably the second hardest thing you'll ever do, a good Christian marriage. So what I want us to talk about tonight is just the idea of having a Christ-centered marriage, okay? A marriage that's centered on Christ where Christ is really first practically, okay? Because... Um, Listen, marriage can work without Christ. There are plenty of non-Christians that have okay, good marriages. 
But I think if you really want to have a thriving marriage, the best kind of marriage, the most enjoyable, happy, healthy, fruitful marriage, you really have to have Christ at the center in every way. Now, um, because here's if if you don't have that, but you're like, well, you know, we still live in the South and the Bible Belt, and divorce is kind of taboo, so I'm going to stick in here and try to make it work, but I'm not really that close to Christ. You will find some other kind of outlet, right? It might be a more scandalous outlet like porn or drugs. It might be a much more domesticated outlet like just eating too much food, being a workaholic, something like that, idolizing your kids, getting all your needs met there. But it won't work well in the long run. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, if we exalt anything other than Christ to the center of our life, you will ruin the proper enjoyment of everything in your life, including the thing that you exalted to the center of your life because Nothing was meant to be at the center of your life other than Christ, and it can't bear that pressure. Does that make sense? I mean, in some sense, if my soul is like a solar system, and the Lord Jesus is like the sunshine, and only he has the gravitational pull to keep everything in the right orbit, and you take him out, and the solar system becomes a wreck. So, three quick points, all right? Just Christ being first in your life, Christ being first in your spouse's life, and Christ being first in your marriage. Now, Genesis 2, what, you know, where am I getting all I mean, it's like, who wants to argue against this? But let, let's see where is it biblically. In Genesis chapter 2, let's start in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And just stop there. We looked at these verses last week, and part of what we looked at, you know, the man had already been made. He was made first. But part of what you notice is this. Adam had a relationship with God before he ever met Eve, right? He was alive. We don't know exactly how long. It probably wasn't long. But he had some sort of relationship with God before he ever met Eve. And Eve, even she had a relationship with God when she was first made because Adam was passed out asleep. The most important thing that you can do in your own life to be a better spouse is make sure that Christ is first in your marriage. I'm starting pre-marriage counseling with a new couple tomorrow night. And the very first thing I'll do is ask them both, kind of share your testimony with me about how you came to Christ. Now, there's at least a twofold reason. One is, biblically speaking, this is in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, you're not supposed to have a spiritually mixed marriage, right? A Christian is not supposed to marry a non-Christian. Two non-Christians can get married. Two Christians can get married. You don't need to have a Christian and a non-Christian getting married. It usually doesn't work very well. So that's part of what I'm doing. But I think both these people are Christians. A lot of times the people I'm meeting with are. More what I'm doing is I'm trying to say, I want to make sure that you really have a deep, vibrant, abiding in Christ experience in your life. And it's not just the shallow, bare minimum. I go to church maybe every other week and put 20 bucks in the plate and sing a couple of songs and that's it. Why? Again, because marriage is such a great gift. But it's a heavy, hard gift to hold. It's kind of, it's kind of like, you know... Um, I have a 15-year-old daughter. Come on in. And, uh, you know, we're going to help her get some kind of car when she turns 16 this summer. Uh, But it's not going to be the nicest car in the world. And I'm certainly not going to buy her some Maserati or something. Because why? Partially because I don't have the money. That's a big reason. But, But the second reason is I don't think she'd be able to handle that level of gift. She wouldn't be able to control it, take care of it. Does that make sense? Okay. So... Marriage is such a great gift, and if there's not a deep maturity in Christ, it's a hard gift to handle. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So, um, now, 
I don't think, I think most of you are married. So um, what does this mean? We're like, too late, I'm already married. You know, whether the other person's a Christian or not, I'm a Christian or not, we're already in it. I'd say this, it's going to seem counterintuitive. But when you're in a fight with your spouse, not the only thing that you can do, but the main thing, the most important thing to do is make sure that you are focusing on growing in your own relationship with Christ. That's the first thing, that's the primary thing to do to heal your marriage, to help your marriage, to grow your marriage. It's counterintuitive because, like, we're not getting along. Great. The first thing you should do is go make sure you're getting along with Jesus. And then, yes, there will be time to talk about are the two of us getting along. But you've got to start there. Does that make sense? A guy called me tonight. Um, probably didn't know he was going to end up being an illustration. Uh, you know, but he called and said, hey, I need to ask you some advice. You know, my wife's got some stuff going on. We're kind of missing each other, and I feel like I need to talk to her about it. And, you know, and it's good because I've, I've talked with this guy before, and he said, listen, I know i got issues. I know i got my own selfishness and not all this. And, and I was like, good, because cause you need to do more repenting of your own issues before you ever getting around to trying to address somebody else's issues. That's a healthy marriage. Okay? Um, so make sure that Christ is first in your life and primarily that you're spending more time and energy in some sense trying to cultivate depth of intimacy with your Lord and Savior before you go try to fix your spouse. Now, the second point with this, you need to make sure that Christ is first in your spouse's life. Again, if, if y'all were dating or at the engaged stage, I'd say, make sure the person you're marrying is a, uh, is a Christian. And, and maybe this can be free advice for, you know, when you're giving counseling to your own kids. Um, I, there was one college guy that he was kind of this on-again, off-again relationship with this girl that I was mentoring. And I kept asking him, I said, well, because I'd met the girl, I'd seen her, you know, and everything I know, she's, she's attractive and she seems like she's doing great in school and she's a hard worker, she's got a good job line. But I kept saying, tell me about this girl spiritually. And he'd say, uh, uh, you know, uh, she's kind of about where I am. And I was like, what's that mean? Well, you know, she grew up in the church, you know, but she's, she's got some questions and she's, you know, uh, you just, I'm like, I bet that ain't a great answer, you know? That's not, if, that ought to be the one thing you're really clear on. And then on the, whatever your second, third priority in marrying somebody, it can, it can be, you can have a lot of freedom. But the first thing is you better make sure they're committed to Christ so that when stuff does hit the fan, you're on the same team spiritually, and, and there's bedrock there, okay? Um, again, talking to this same guy on the phone tonight, <clears throat> getting ready to go talk to his wife, and part of what I said to him is, listen, to the degree that you can make the conversation a Christ-centered conversation, it will go better. And here's what I mean. If you go and just say, hey... You haven't been respectful to me, or you've been selfish, or you're not meeting my needs. My guess is some of us have had conversations like that. How do those conversations tend to go for us? Right? I'm just showing up and telling you that I am mad, that I don't feel like you're being the wife or the husband you're supposed to be, and I'm sad about it, I'm mad about it, I'm hurt about it. They usually don't go very well, right? Unless the other person is having an amazingly spirit-filled day. But if, if you can come with genuine love and grace and humility and not trying to be junior Holy Spirit, okay, but come in and say, listen, you know, I have been praying for you and I do think we're kind of missing each other in marriage. And let me start. I, I genuinely want to confess some own sin. But I do think maybe there's something in your life that you need to think about, you need to pray about. Maybe you're not being respectful enough to me. Okay. 
And I'm just asking you to go pray about that between you and Christ. That can be a much more powerful way to deliver the message. And I'm not trying to make it super spiritual, like, well, you're a big sinner and you need to repent. I'm just saying, instead of saying, we've got to fix this whole problem right now between me and you, you can say to them, I need you to go and talk to the Lord about what this is. Because if, if this is a sin issue, your first priority isn't just to get right with me, it's to get right with the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay. And again, if only one spouse is trying to do it that way, it might not work very well. But if both spouses are coming at it that way, it can be really great. Which leads us in our third point. Christ has got to be first in your marriage. Now let me, let me try to make this really pragmatic. Um, I've told some of the bad stuff about my wife and I's marriage. Let me tell you uh, one of the good things. So, um, it, in it, I'll say this. It took us about four years to land on this. Again, I'm in full-time ministry, so I was very kind of passionate early on about we're going to have some kind of like family devotion even before we have kids, and we're going to pray together, and da-da-da-da. And it, it didn't go that great, all right? I mean, I think on our honeymoon, I started out and said, we're going to read from Song of Solomon every day and pray about it. And that was kind of funny or weird for two or three days. It didn't last long. And then we kind of got into the normal warp and whoop of life. And I'm like, we're going to sit here and read a chapter of the Bible and discuss it. And it just, it didn't go great for, again, all sorts of reasons. I wasn't a great leader. She wasn't a great follower. But we eventually got into this thing, which again, we've been doing now for roughly the last 20 years, where once a week, depending on our crazy schedules, we would either try to have breakfast or lunch or just a coffee date with each other. And the whole point of the date is to spiritually connect. We call it our spiritual date or heart date or prayer date. But I think it's great for the average married couple if you could have, you know, a typical Friday night date where you just go out and it's just fun, right? Get a babysitter if you still got kids at home and just go out and laugh and drink and you know, tell funny stories and just let your hair down and relax and remember why you got married in the first place and you like each other and eat some good food. Okay, that's healthy for a marriage. But just as important, if not more important, is a time to spiritually connect. Listen, I know some couples that say they pray together every night, and if that's you, keep it up, more power to you. But when my wife and I tried to do that, it usually turned into this because she usually goes to bed a little bit before me like she's already fallen asleep and I'm like oh God please bless the missionaries and you know she's snoring before I've even said amen it just it was no good so we said we're gonna go after quality instead of quantity and so like right now in our life typically it's Tuesday we go to lunch that works for our schedule and a lot of the conversations just how are you doing spiritually how's your walk with the Lord what's what's hard for you right now she's got a lot going on with her mom how are you dealing with the stress of having to take care of your mom? And then a good question for all of us, but especially for the men in my experience is, are you mad at me for anything? That maybe I'm not aware that you're mad at me because I'd like you to let me know if you are mad. And we talk about it. And a lot of times, guys, it, it might just be more of a quick show up at Starbucks, get a coffee, talk for 30 minutes. And then we go sit in the car <clears throat> and we just pray. Five minutes, 10 at the most, about everything we talked about. Pray for our life, pray for our kids, pray for our heart, pray for our marriage. And that has become one of, if not the best thing that we do in our marriage. If nothing else, it's a buffer. It's really hard for anything to build up past about seven days. Does that make sense? Right? If, there, if, if there's some little ways that we've kind of nicked and bruised one another verbally in conversation, it's like, well, it's going to come out Tuesday. I don't feel like talking about it right now, but it's going to come out on Tuesday. So I would highly recommend that to you. Um, if both spouses are really seeking to have their deepest needs met, their joy, 
their sense of purpose in life in Christ first, the marriage can really thrive. If both spouses are not doing that, okay, I'm going to give you an image that will stick with you. Your marriage will come, become like two ticks with no dog. And it will just be like you're sucking the life and the blood out of one another. And there won't be enough to give. And one person will become too demanding and then frustrated. Well, he's not doing everything I want him to do. And the other person will be burned out, worn out, because, well, I tried to do everything she wanted me to or he wanted me to, and now I'm kind of bitter that he made me try because he laid this crushing burden on my back that wasn't supposed to be laid on my back. It was supposed to be laid on Christ's back. There was nothing I could do. Okay? So it's not pretty. Only the Christ-centered marriage really thrives in the deepest ways. Now, um, some of you may be saying, you keep saying Christ-centered, you know, you did make the point, Genesis 2, how they both had a relationship with God first, but where are you getting Christ from in this? So let me just look at a couple more verses and we'll wrap this up. Look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there was the pattern for all marriages for all time. A man grows up, he leaves his mom and dad, he goes and finds a wife, and she becomes number one in his life. And they become one flesh, which is more than just the sexual relationship. It's they become one, best friends in every way. Now, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Maybe the longest, most sustained best, deepest teaching in the, in the entire New Testament is Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole thing. Paul talks a lot about husbands being good leaders, loving their wives, sacrificing for their wives, wives being good followers, submitting to their husbands, respecting them. But at the very end of the chapter, it's really interesting, and just kind of a total side note, but it's an important one in our day and culture. A lot of people, when they read this passage, they hate it because it doesn't fit with the modern cultural thoughts about men and women, and they say, well, Paul must have been just kind of saying some things that would fit good in the Greco-Roman world and the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago at the church at Ephesus, but that's not true. Look at where Paul is going to ground his teaching. Ephesians chapter 5, and skip all the way down to verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, I'm not trying to be culturally sensitive here. I'm trying to be creationally sensitive. This has been the pattern all the way from the very beginning. It was still the pattern then. It's still the pattern now. Okay, But that's not even what we're talking about. Because in some sense, that's not even the main thing Paul is talking about. Look at the next verse. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see what he did there? What he said is, listen, when God first invented marriage, God designed marriage in such a way in Genesis chapter 2, that God knew sin was coming in Genesis chapter 3. And not only was it going to ruin marriage, it was going to ruin the whole universe. And so God knew that was coming. God knew there would be a plan to save humanity through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God designed marriage to be this living parable that shows the world a little picture, a little window into the heart of the gospel. The way that a dying Savior saves His people. Okay, now, let me try to make this really practical for us. The way that you ought to conduct your marriage is as a living picture of Christ saving the church and the church in response loving Christ and wanting to follow Him. 
Now, um, that's glorious. If you really just think about it for a second, that, that is a high bar for marriage because it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's glorious. <laughs> and it also can be crushing at times, right? Your marriage is supposed to paint a picture of the greatest mystery in the universe, God dying for his people. That's overwhelming. So practically, what do we do with that? The main thing I'll just say is this. When hardship comes in your marriage, don't be surprised. Because at the heart of the gospel was a gruesome death. Now, let's don't have any raised hands or elbows right now. But have there ever been times in your marriage where you're kind of like, this kind of feels like I'm literally dying to myself. Well, welcome to the club. That's the way marriage is supposed to work. Because we're telling a story of salvation. I'll just give a very personal example. All right, this is this is only a few months ago. It's not very long. I was I was on a walk. Okay, there's a lot going on. I was on a walk and I was praying, and I was like, there, I was like, God, you know, I was in my mind. This is the way I was praying. I was like, there's really two that there's a lot going on, but it's like there's really only two things that I can, there's a lot of stuff I can get over. There's really two main things I'm asking you for right now. Okay. One of them is I want to grow more spiritually. Right, it's like I am in full time ministry. I ought to be more godly at this season of my life. I'm a little frustrated. I want to be more Christ-like. That really, I mean, I, that was one of my prayers. I want to be conformed more to the image of Christ. I was praying that for myself personally. But we were also, not, not in a hard season of marriage, but just in a busy season, right? You ever been there? Not hard as busy. Like I said, a lot going on. Wife's got stuff with the mom. We're both working. We got four kids. And the romantic life had not been everything that I would have liked to have been for a while. So like, and Lord, could, could we please... Just find some more time, some more energy to make the romance life a little bit better. I feel like I'm struggling and missing out. I'm sure nobody can identify with me at all. And a thought went through my mind. And it was one of these thoughts that I really think the Holy Spirit put there. Because I don't think I put it there. And here was the thought. What if you can only have one of those requests? Now, I know the right answer, right? I'll take the Jesus, conform to Jesus' image. It's like, I'm not sure that's the one I'm the most passionate about right now in my prayer life. And it, it was just this kind of sweet yet hard reminder from the Lord. Do you really mean what you say? Do you really want to be conformed to the image of Christ? You know what that means to be conformed to the image of Christ? I mean, he loved his bride, the church, so much. He was literally willing to die. Not just metaphorically die to himself. He literally died. And it was just a good sobering reminder for me to say, Lord, I'd still like to have both things. But yes, if I have to choose, I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And part of the realization that came over me is sometimes the hardships that God puts in our marriage in his sovereignty is the answer to our first prayer. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. And he may or may not give us the second one later. But if we can honestly say, I want to have a great, happy, healthy, fun, intimate marriage. But more than that, I want to honor Jesus. A Christ-centered marriage, a Christ-centered life. It takes some of the pressure off of marriage to meet all your deepest needs. Now, here's the last thing. What do you do? Because some of you, maybe, are sitting there listening to this thinking, well, I'm trying to be... Christ-centered husband. Or I think I have been a very good Christ-centered wife. 
I'm fighting for a Christ-centered marriage. The other person is not doing their job. Right? I mean, most of the time when there's conflict in marriage, we're not thinking to ourselves, my spouse is doing everything right, and I'm the one that's really screwing it up. Right? It tends to go the other way in our mind. I feel like I'm doing a pretty daggum good job if he or she could just do more things to get better. Listen, in that moment, if you really feel that way, believe that, again, remember what's at the heart of the gospel. That Christ loved us so greatly, he was willing to forgive all our sins, all our offenses. Right? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ loved us. He came after us. He pursued us, even when we were in the midst of hating him. And if he would do that for us, covering that great chasm, I ought to be able to do that for the one human being who's primary in my life. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, mostly we're thankful to you that you are such a loving Savior, a gracious Savior, a kind Savior, a warm Savior, a wise Savior, a Savior that literally died to yourself, died to your own momentary surface desires and needs so that you could save us. I pray that we would not be bored with the reality of the gospel. I pray that our thoughts about you, that our worship would not be stale, but it would be fresh, it would be full, it would be alive, and that you would Use the gospel truths as kindling in our heart or to light a fire of passion and power, of strength, so that even when things are hard, we could keep moving towards one another, forgiving one another, being gracious to one another, pursuing one another, serving one another, because you have served us so well. We pray this all in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.